We're in a series this summer going through Malachi or Malachi. You can call him whatever you want. He died a couple hundred thousand years ago. He's not offended. Uh, going through the book of uh, Malachi. Malachi was a prophet. And I don't know what you know about prophets, but the main job of a prophet is to speak to the people for God. God gives them a message, and then the prophet speaks to the people for God. So this is what Malachi was doing. He was hearing things from God and then speaking to the people uh, for God. Um, Malachi lived about 2,400 years ago. If you, if you have your Bibles, it's the last book in our Christian uh, Bible, the New Testament, uh, or Old Testament rather, right before the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible's broken into two main sections. The Old Testament, which means like covenant. It's a relationship God had with the people Israel. And it's everything leading up to Jesus, who is the Messiah. And then the New Testament is the story of Jesus and the beginning of the movement uh, of the church, which he begun. So this is Malachi. He's speaking to Jewish people, Israelites, very specific group of people. And I told you last week that he's speaking to the post-exiled Jewish people. If you don't know the history, the nation of Babylon had come and destroyed Jerusalem and then taken ex as exiles uh, a number of Jewish uh, families and people from Jerusalem, taking them back to Babylon where they were in exile for 70 years and then Persian Empire came and destroyed the Babylonian Empire and the Persian king was like, what are all these Jews doing in Babylon? And he, he allowed them to go back to uh, their homeland. And so this is now, they've rebuilt the temple, which was destroyed, Babylon destroyed it, Babylonians destroyed it. They rebuilt the, the uh, walls of the city of Jerusalem. And this is the group of people that Malachi is speaking to. So as I said last week, this is not written to us. This is not written to you. It was written to Jewish people after the exile when they come back, Jewish exiles who lived in the first covenant, which was very different than the covenant we live under, uh, the contract or, or uh, agreement we have between us and God through Jesus. So it's a different covenant, a different understanding, but just because it wasn't written to us does not mean it's not for us. And there's things that we can learn and things that we learn about who God is and some of the things that God expects for us, uh, of us, as we uh, follow him. Now, one of the challenges of the Christian faith, uh, one of the temptations us Christians have in our faith, is the temptation to separate sacred from secular. And what I mean by this is we compartmentalize our lives into two categories. There's like the religious, spiritual, sacred parts of our lives, and then there's the physical, non-spiritual, material parts of our lives. And we kind of try to separate those out. And here's the deal. If you have ever known a Christian who did this, you've been frustrated by it. Even if you're not a Christian, you've been frustrated by the tempta temptation Christians have to separate the secular from the uh, sacred because when we separate uh, the sacred from the secular, it causes us to live a double standard life. It causes us to live in hypocrisy. See, here's the thing. When you say, I believe in God, or more specifically, I'm a Christian or a follower of Jesus, immediately with this, and you know this because you do this to others, immediately when someone says, I'm a Christian, you attach to that expectations on them, don't you? You just suddenly have expectations for their ethical and their moral lives, simply because they said they're a Christian. But when we separate those two, and this is where it's so frustrating, is that is we, you know, people say, hey, I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of Jesus, and then their lives don't match what they say they believe, 
it causes us to be turned away from them. In fact, this is one of the reasons maybe you've been frustrated and given up on the faith. And this is a huge problem among younger people. And by younger people, I mean college-age kids because they look at their parents or their grandparents and they say, hey, you say you believe, you say that you're a follower of, but what you do and what you say you believe don't match up. I don't actually think you believe. So why would I want to believe? It's a huge problem, and many people are walking away from the faith simply because of this separation of the secular or the sacred from uh, the secular. So we're not the first people to struggle with this temptation, with this separation of sacred and secular. 2,400 years ago, the Israelites, these post-exiled Jews, were struggling and being tempted to separate the sacred from the secular. And uh, you want to know what God's response is? is pretty much what our response is when we meet people who separate the sacred and secular. He pushed himself away, just like we push away from people who do this. God pushed himself away, not permanently, because God is a faithful God, and even though they weren't faithful to the covenant, God always is faithful to what he says and what he promises. But for a season, he says, I don't want anything to do with this, with you, because of your uh, separation of the sacred from the secular. So, to catch up, if this is your first Sunday with us, or you weren't with us two weeks ago, we went through the first message in the series. Um, let's just kind of retract and, and remember what we talked about in the first week, because the second message just kind of leap, uh, jumps off of what was already talked about. In the first message, we saw that you can't fake devotion. Fake devotion quickly becomes forced duty. This is the difference between religion which is always built on what do I have to do to get what I want from God and I'm just gonna do just enough to get what I want from God and it's just this forced duty and it causes us to cut corners as opposed to having a relationship that's, uh, uh, that is uh, built off of love. Motivation for what we do matters a great deal and here's why. Duty calculates, love demonstrates. Duty, religious duty that says, okay, God needs this. What, what we do is we calculate, what do I need to do to just pass the grade? And where can I cut corners? Because we're always calculating. This is what religious duty does to us. But devotion or love, it doesn't think, what do I have to do to just make the grade? It doesn't say, what do I have to do? It says, what can I do? How much, not what do I have to give, how much can I give? Motivation matters. Duty calculates. Love demonstrates. And in the first message, we saw how duty among the Israelites was calculating as it related to their sacred life. You might remember uh, they were coming to worship and in that culture uh, or in that covenant, to worship God, you would sacrifice animals. Well, they were just calculating duty, right? And which leads to cutting corners. And so they were bringing these diseased and lamed animals to God as worship to God. And God's like, who do you think I am? I'm God of the universe. I deserve your best, not like second class, not second, you know, best. I deserve your best, but they were calculating. They were calculating. At one point, you might remember in Malachi chapter 1 verse 10, God comes along and he simply says, shut the door, temple doors, right? Just shut the temple doors. And this is interesting because as far as I'm aware, it's the only time God says, close the temple doors in the entire Old Testament. This is like God saying, because at that time to meet with God, you had to go to a specific place. You actually had to go to the temple or the tabernacle to meet with God. That's where his presence was. God is saying, I don't want you to come to my presence. 
We're through. We're done. It's broken. Our, our relationship is not there anymore. Shut the temple doors. Well, as we move into what uh, God and Malachi write, uh, say next as it relates to the nation of Israel, what we're going to find is that not only does God care about the sacred parts of our life, not only does God care about what we do on Sunday, See, translation to like our equivalent would be stop coming to church. Because you can't come to church and then live however you want the other six days. What we're going to find out today as we continue in Malachi is that all of life is sacred. There is no separation, according to God, between what's like his territory and what's not his territory. All of life is sacred. And Malachi, God, through Malachi, is going to talk about three areas that are super significant that we, even 2,000 years later, we still tend to separate out and say, oh, that's not really like a spiritual thing. That's not like a religious thing. That's not a sacred part of life. The three areas are this. God's going to talk about marriage, power, and money. Nice work. Marriage, power, and money. And we often separate this out. We're like, you know, I read my Bible and I pray and I, I you know, sing songs and praise God and lift my hands. You know that God cares what you do with your marriage or power and money just as much as what you do when you read and pray and come to church, participate in small group. Here's what God says regarding marriage. We'll work through these. I, before we dive in, I gotta say this. We could do an entire series on each of these. I mean, these are huge topics. And on many of these, we have done series in the church before on these topics. Um, but today, we're going to hit all of them in one message, okay? So it's just like, you know, in the old days, they used to say, you should, preachers should preach a three-point sermon. So this is your, I'm going old school, this is your three-point sermon, okay? But it's all under the theme that all of life is sacred, and we can't separate it out, we can't separate it out. So here's what God says regarding marriage. He says, remember, he's speaking to Israelites, post-exiled in the first covenant. He says this, do we not, uh, Malachi writes for the people, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we, the Israelites, profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? This is an unbelievable concept. See, he says, we profane the covenant of our ancestors. Do you know what the covenant of the ancestors was? It was an agreement between God and the people. God said, hey, if you do your part, I'm going to do my part. Everything's going to work out well. But if you don't do your part, then, you know, things are going to go bad. This was the covenant, the old covenant. We don't live in this covenant. But it was between God and the people. But here's the interesting thing. He says, we profane a covenant between God and people by the way we are unfaithful to people. This is an unbelievable concept. See, what you do this way affects how you relate to God this way. In fact, Jesus said this in the, in, the, in the New Testament. Some religious leaders who knew the Old Covenant really well, they're like, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Right? Because there's 613, there's like a lot. So which one gets like first place? And Jesus says this, love God, and then you can't separate the second because they come as one. Love people. Meaning this, how you love people will determine your relationship with God. And when you have a relationship with God, it will affect how you love others. And that's what Malachi says. Same thing, he goes on regarding marriage. This is how we've been unfaithful. 
Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, this temple of the Lord, desecrated how? Uh, by marrying women who worship a foreign god. The first covenant, the old law, said that as Israelites, as Jewish people, they were not allowed to intermarry with foreigners. Now you might think, that sounds kind of racist, but it had nothing to do with race and everything to do with faith. The reason God had told them, I don't want you to marry foreigners is because foreigners bring foreign gods and eventually in your marriage relationship to make the marriage work you're going to stop following your god and you're going to start following their god which means this you can't separate the sacred from the secular what you do in your marriage is sacred it is sacred so who you marry matters a great deal Yeah, but that's Old Covenant, that's Old Testament. What about us today? What about for Jesus following New Covenant people? What's the rule on who you marry? Well, it's interesting. The principle is pretty much the same. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, and all you young people, kids, listen up. This is for you. Those of you teenagers, college kids who aren't married yet, this is for you. In regards to whom you marry, Paul says this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He's not talking about eggs there, okay? Do not be yoked. This is the idea of do not come into an unbreakable partnership with people who who do not believe like you do. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're probably thinking, Christians are so high on themselves. Like, What, you can't marry like someone who doesn't believe like you do? You think you're that much better than the rest of us? Now here's the deal, there are some Christians that are high on their own horse. But Paul did not write this for that reason. This didn't have to do with being prideful or judgmental of others, it had to do with your faith. Because Paul knew you can't separate the the secular and and the sacred. You can't just say, well I'm gonna marry this person even though they don't believe like I do and I'll still do my faith on the side. It doesn't work that way. To help you maybe understand if you're not a person of faith, to maybe help you understand how this works, uh, let me try and describe this in non-spiritual terms. Imagine you had a friend. We all have a best friend today. Uh, Some of you do, some of you don't, but right now you do in your imagination. You have a best friend, and this best friend of yours loves the ocean. I mean, they just absolutely love the ocean. They, they just, they want to live by the ocean. In fact, if they could live on the ocean, they're going to live on the ocean. They just don't get people who love to live on land because land is so, it's so predictable. It's so boring, but the ocean, it's, it's unpredictable and it's, it's exciting. And they have this dream and passion to one day sail around the world on the ocean. The ocean is their passion. It's their life. It's core to who they are. And this ocean-loving best friend of yours comes to you one day and says, hey, I found someone, I think I'm gonna get married to them. You're like, oh, tell me about this person you wanna get married to. Like, well, you know, the thing they love is land. They just love land. They wanna be a farmer one day with horses and you know, and they just love the stability of land. They hate the ocean, it's so unpredictable. They, they have no desire to ever be near the ocean. They love the land, their passion is to be a, a farmer on the land and never go to the ocean in their life. This is their like core, this is who they are. What would you say to your friend? <laughs> opposites attract right opposites attract you know what you would say to your friend if you're a good friend it probably is not gonna work 
you're going to be frustrated or they're going to be frustrated. And it's true, opposites do attract. But when it's the core parts of our lives, there's no giving. There's no giving in those. And this is what Paul is saying to believers. He's saying, don't be yoked, don't come into a partnership with someone who actually has a different life purpose and life goal than yours. Because here's the deal, whom you marry is not a sidebar to your faith. Because whom you marry is sacred, just like the rest of your parts of faith. You can't say, well, I'm gonna you know, marry this person and then I'll just do my faith over here. It is central. You are becoming one person in marriage. And so Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers because you can't separate sacred from secular. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but what do I do if I'm already married to someone who's an unbeliever? Well, here's what you should do, and this is also in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You can read it more later. If you're already married to someone who's an unbeliever, here's what you should do. If they're willing to stay married to you, you should stay married to them. And here's how you should do your marriage. Love them and honor them, just like you would love and honor Jesus, your Savior and Lord. Love them and honor them, just like you would honor and serve your Savior and Lord Jesus. Well, God doesn't get after the people simply in whom they marry. He also gets after them and says, how you do marriage is also sacred. Here's what he says. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? Why God, right? I mean, we're doing all this religious stuff, right? We're bringing the offerings. We're praying every day. And God, you don't listen. (laughs) And God's like, yeah, because it's not just what you do in your spiritual life that's spiritual, How you're doing marriage is important as well. And here's what he says. It is because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. It's all sacred. And what does the one God seek? He seeks godly offspring, which means he wants godliness to be produced in you and through you in every area of life, including marriage. He goes on, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Be on your guard against whom? Against you, against your own unfaithfulness. Be on your guard against your own unfaithfulness. And he goes on, the man who hates and divorces his wife, that word hates is related to breaking covenants. We talked about that last week. The man who hates and breaks covenant by divorcing his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. See, it appears that in that time, these Jewish men, and at that time, men had all the power in that society. They had all the power. That men were kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm kind of tired of my wife. I found someone a little, more, little better looking. And they just kicked the girl to the curb and then marry someone else. And some of the time they were marrying foreign women with foreign gods. And God says this is actually an act of violence because in that culture where men had all the power and they could easily divorce their wife, wives had a very difficult time divorcing their husbands. Uh, this was an act of violence because women in that time did not have means to make money 
to protect or provide for themselves. It was the husband's job. One of their duties was to provide for and protect their wives. And these uh, Jewish men were simply kicking them to the curb and giving them no opportunity to be protected or provided for. And God says, this is an act of violence. See, there was an imbalance of power between the man and the woman. And here's one of the challenges of our world today. We look at the world and we say, the problem with the world is that there is imbalance of power. And we need equality in power. But let me tell you this. We will never have equality of power, not in our marriages, not in our churches, not in our businesses, and not in our world. There, we will not reach. In fact, God does not call us to have equality of power. Because equality in power, or imbalance of power, is not the problem. Something else is the problem. And the problem is this. Imbalance of power is only a problem when the one with power stops using their power for the good of others. This is the problem of the world when it relates to power. It's not that there's an imbalance. There's always been an imbalance. Kids will always be children to their parents, right? Employees will always be under their employers. God doesn't say take away all that stuff. He says use the power you have for the good of others. And this is what God gets against the men, because they, in their culture, they had all the power. They were using their power for their own good to abuse and come over their wives. And today, we can have a battle of power, but if women or wives get the power of their husband, and this happens in some marriages, they simply abuse and manipulate the husband. Because imbalance of power is not the problem. The problem is what we do with the power that we've been given. You can't separate sacred from secular. And as it relates to how you do marriage, how you do marriage, God says this is as sacred as going to church, showing up in the temple, reading your Bible. How you do marriage matters. Ah, that's just old covenant. What about the new covenant? Here's how Jesus is, one of Jesus' best friends and follower, Peter, said it in the new covenant. He says the same thing. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. The word considerate means live with knowledge. That means take time to know, understand what their needs are. He goes on. That's what love looks like for men, okay? And treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, I didn't write this. Peter wrote this, and there's lots of discussion as to what he means by weaker partner. And we can debate that all day long. But it appears he's talking about an imbalance of power. There's a stronger and a weaker, whether it's physical or whatever you know, way he might be referring to it. But he says, even if you have greater power in any area, it doesn't matter what area, use your power for their good. Consider them. Live with knowledge and love and respect for them. And here's why he says you should do this. Men, listen up. This is so, so important. So that... Nothing will hinder your prayers. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? These Jewish guys, 450 years before Peter wrote this, complaining to God, God, we're bringing sacrifices and you're not listening. We're doing all this spiritual stuff and you're not listening. And 400 years later, Peter says, hey, what you do this way affects what you are doing this way. And what you do this way impacts the relationship you have with God. And this is true for women too. Regardless, whatever power you've been given, use it for the good of others. You can't separate 
sacred from secular. To be really, really kind of pointed, this would be the equivalent of God coming to us today, and maybe this is true of you and your marriage, saying, shut the doors of the church. Stop coming. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying to me. I will not listen. Start treating your spouse better. Whatever power you have in your relationship, you can use it against or you can use it underneath for. And here's the deal. You don't need to pray about this. If you're married, you don't need to be like, I need to spend some time praying about this. No, God's not listening to your prayers until you change, okay? That's what he says. It's gonna hinder your prayers. Change the way that you treat your spouse. It is so, so important. It's not different. It's all sacred, according to God. Well, God continues his conversation and he moves changing directions from marriage to power. And here's what he says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, God says, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them or where is the God of justice? So what apparently was happening is the Israelites were looking around at other people and saying, hey, people who abuse power, they seem to be getting really rich. Evil people are prospering. So God must be pleased with evil people, people who abuse power because he keeps blessing them or maybe he's not a God of justice, right? This is what they're coming, they're they're saying, hey, God, you must either be pleased with people who do evil or you're not a God of justice. And God's like, ah, you have it all wrong. And here's what he says. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, speaking of John the Baptist, who 400 years later would prepare the way for Jesus. I'm gonna send John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord, referring to Jesus, the one he's preparing the way for, suddenly the Lord Jesus, you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, a new covenant, whom you desire is gonna show up, says the Lord Almighty. And what is he gonna do? Here's what he says a number of verses later. So I will come to put you on trial. Meaning, Judgment day is coming. And I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless. Many of these areas have to do with an abuse of power, right? You can lie about someone to gain the upper hand, whatever it is, if you're you know, doing these things. And he goes on, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In essence, God says, listen, Judgment day is coming. And yes, evil people, people who abuse power, they can get really, really prosperous for a short season. But eventually, I'm gonna hold them to account because you can't separate sacred from secular and how you treat your employees as an employer is sacred. And what you testify in court as you have opportunity to either speak truth or speak lie to undermine someone or in your conversations of gossip or slander, what you do is sacred and how you treat people. See, the Christian use of power, and this is what will turn the world upside down, not equality of power, but a Christian's use of power looks like this. They use power, the power you have you use for the good of others. This is actually what Jesus did. Jesus, who had all authority and all power, all authority and all power, did not use his power against you or over you, but he used his power under you for your good. 
by taking your sin and mine and paying for it with his death on the cross. And he calls us as his followers to use power in the same way. Well, God has talked about marriage. He's talked about power. And now he's going to talk. We're two-thirds done. Okay, hang in there. We're almost done. Now he's going to talk about money. Here's what he says. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Even though you haven't kept the covenant, I am faithful to the things I promised. I should have destroyed you, but I'm a good God. And he goes on and says, here's how you've been unfaithful. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Come back, do it my way. And they're like, well, how do we return? Where have we gone wrong? And here's what God says. Here's another area. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, but you ask, how are we robbing you? And God says, you're robbing me with your tithes and offerings. In the first covenant, God had commanded the people to give 10% of any income they gave, not the last 10%, the first 10%, as a sign to say, God, thanks for what you've given, and everything I have comes from you, and it's yours. So this was just a physical thing the people did, and it went to the temple, but they gave the first 10%. They also had offerings, and some people have done some calculations to kind of figure out what all the commands were in the Old Testament as to how much they had to give uh, in, in a year, And uh, they've calculated it's as high as 23% of one's income went to tithes and offerings, which we look at and we're like, whoa, that's a lot. It's a number. And we always try to find ways to cut corners when it's just religious duty, right? And they were cutting corners and God says, you're robbing me because I've given this all to you and you're not honoring me. You're not even trusting me with what I've given. And then God says this to those Jewish people. He says, test me in this. Said this to them, test me, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Probably this floodgates of heaven means I'm gonna open up the skies and it's gonna rain and your crops are gonna do awesome and there's gonna be sun and rain, it's gonna be incredible. And on top of that, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not uh, drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So the people were withholding from God, thinking, I don't know if he's good. And I don't know that everything I have is yours. Maybe I can do this on my own. And God says, no, what you do with your money is sacred. It's all mine. And I'm interested in this. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians, mostly Christian pastors and teachers, have taken this verse and this passage in Malachi and come up with a really, really, wrong theology and the theology says this if you give money to god god's going to make you filthy rich in fact you shouldn't invest in rssps or in real estate or in mutual funds you should invest in the lord and he's going to make you filthy rich it's called the health wealth gospel this good news that if you give to god god's going to give you a lot a lot a lot and it's it's wrong it's an error first of all i want to point out who was this written to Was this written to you? No. Well, first of all, it was written to farmers, vineyard owners and farmers. So if you're not a vineyard owner and you're not a farmer, you're out. You don't get any health, wealth, gospel, okay? For those of us that are farmers, who else was it written to? It was written to Jewish people. So if you're not Jewish, you're out as well. God's not speaking to you. And thirdly, who else was it written to? It's written to Jews post-exile living in the first covenant. It wasn't even written to Messianic Jews. 
But there is a concept here that's important. And what God is saying is, listen, to those people who said, you don't trust me, so why don't you test me? I come through. I'm a God who cares for you. So what does it look like to deal with our money, and what does it look like to be generous in the new covenant? And what does God promise to give? Because he does promise to give us something as well when we give. Here's what the Apostle Paul says for Christians. He says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Sounds like the same, right? Give lots to God, and God's going to give you lots back. Yeah, but it might not be financially, materially. Here's what he goes on to say. Here's the heart of giving for Christians. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. No 5%, 10%, 23%, cuz we're going to find ways to just cut corners, right? It's way bigger than that. Decide what you've uh, give what you decide in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Don't calculate, calculate, calculate. Love demonstrates. And here's the heart of love for God loves a calculated giver. Right? No. The heart of devotion is someone who is cheerful. It's not a number. And your number is going to look different than my number. And some of you are going to give a lot and some of you are going to give less. But what you're going to give is what you've decided, not under compulsion, you're going to give it out of cheerfulness. And this is scary because this is way more invasive than 5, 10, or 23%. This is like a hundred percent. This does not have limits. This is the difference between religion and a relationship with God. God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. And as it relates to your money, to give with a cheerful heart. And that means there's no end to what you may be willing and what God might ask you to give. And he goes on and says, and God is able, not God will, but he's able to bless you abundantly Now, is he talking about financial blessing? We're going to talk about that. And he gives us a little interlude. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, so you're going to get taken care of. Now, how is he going to able to bless you? It comes back down to here. You will bound in every good work. See, what's more important than being financially rich to God is being godly. See, there's God, God, God can make you wealthy. He owns everything. And and. In essence, if, you re, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get the inheritance of eternity with him and heaven and, and a new earth and living in the goodness of, of life without sin. He can give you everything and it will be given. But it does not mean that on this earth you're going to be financially wealthy. There's a lot of people that give a lot of money away and they never get wealthy financially. And others give a lot of money away and God allows them to become wealthy. But you can be rich, rich, in good work, in right living, in righteousness, righteousness. And that's way more valuable, according to Paul, than simply getting a lot of money. What God was saying to the people of Israel was saying, hey, you don't trust me, so test me. Let's just try this for a season. It was a one-time thing. God doesn't say that to everyone. Trust me. And as we live with a cheerful attitude when we give, it's an act of trust saying, God, it's all yours, and I give it all to you. See, you can't separate sacred from secular. Everything you do in all areas of life are sacred. And God wants all of you in all your areas of life 
to be under his rule, it's sacred. What you do in your marriage is just as important and maybe even more so than what you do in coming to church and singing a song and raising your hands. What you do with your money, what you do as an employer with the power you have as a parent, with the power you have as a wife, with the power you have with your husband, with the, as a husband, with the power you have with your wife, what you do with the power you have is just as important as if you spend time weeping and wailing and praying to God. And God might say even more important. So I want to ask you today, in what areas of your life are you tempted are you tempted to separate the sacred from the secular? Where you're tempted to say, okay, God, you kind of get your parts of me, but there's some parts that are for me. And I'm going to do my life my way in these areas. And I'll kind of give you your time. I'll give you your stuff. I'll give you some money. But I still want mine. And what areas are you trying to separate sacred from secular? And specifically in these three areas, which one hits home most? As you think of your marriage or whom you'll marry and how you do marriage, as you think of your power, as you think of your money. Now imagine with me for a second, I'll close with this. Imagine with me for a second. If Christians actually did this. Imagine if we, as Christians in Hill County, allowed God, all of us, we didn't separate and say, well, this part's me, but everything came under what he's called us to do. Here's what I know would happen. Every father in the world, every father in the world would say, I want my daughter to marry one of those. I don't even believe what they believe. It's weird, like Jesus rose from the, like, what? Oh, that's ridiculous. But I want my daughter to have a husband who loves, like Christians love their wives. And we, everyone in the world would want to work for a Christian employer. I don't even know what my employer believes. I don't even want to know. It's just ridiculous. But the way they use power, not over me, but for me, I want to work for one of them. And I think our world would look at us, and especially college-age Christians, and college-age non-Christians and teenagers would look at us and say, they don't just say they believe. They believe. Their lives line up with what they say. I want in on that. I want to close with a prayer of confession because undoubtedly, all of us could look at these three areas and say, I failed. I, I haven't used power. I've used power against others many times. I haven't done my marriage well. I haven't done my, my, uh, my, my finances well. I'm not trusting God. And I want to pray a prayer of confession because the point of this message was not to make you guilty. Jesus has already paid for all of it. But it's, a, it's an invitation to join with him in saying my future is going to look different than my past. And today I repent, I confess for what I have done and how I have failed. And thank you, Jesus, that you have made me clean and I put my faith in you. And I give you what I've been holding back. So if you want to join in confession, just agree in your heart with what I pray. Let's close in prayer. Father, we confess that we have not loved our spouses the way that you have called us to love our spouses. 
God, we've been unfaithful. We haven't guarded against our own unfaithfulness, and sometimes that's sexual uh, unfaithfulness. Sometimes that's unfaithfulness to put them before ourselves and honor them above ourselves. And we've been unfaithful to them by living for ourselves rather than living true to the covenant we made and the vows we made on our wedding day. God, please forgive us. And Father, we confess that when we've had the opportunity to uh, tear someone down, even just twisting the truth a little bit, to make ourselves look better, we've used the power we had to tear them down and build ourselves up. And Father, we ask that in the ways that we have misused and abused the power you've given us against others, that you would forgive us. And Father, we confess that when it comes to money, we've sometimes regarded that as our territory rather than understanding it's yours. And we have not trusted you with our money, but we've held it closely to ourselves rather than living with open hands. And Father, would you forgive us of that? And Father, thank you that in Jesus, we are not condemned that our past is not the story that will be written of our future, but that you have forgiven us and you give us a clean start and mercies are new today. And so Father, would you give us the wisdom as your word has challenged us today, the wisdom to know what to do and then God, would you give us the courage to not hold back, but to step out and live in faithfulness to you. We ask these things in your name, your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.